So as many of you know, Katie and Kelly were at training for children's ministry last all of last week, and they got back last night late, and um, you'll hear more about that training later uh, from them, but I'm so thankful to Kelly that she brought Katie back. Um, some of you have asked, said something like, you know, you're going to appreciate Katie so much more after this, right? And that's true. Like, she can't leave again. This is how you express appreciation, right? Oh, there, you know, it, it is such a good and sanctifying experience, um, you know, doing it like this way. Um, There's so many things in the middle of the night that you just can't control, right? Um, and you lose sleep and those sorts of things. So if you see me dozing off all during the sermon, then you'll understand why. Um, but I, I am so thankful. As on Father's Day, I'm thankful for Katie. <laughs> and that she's back. Um, so... You'll discover if you're around Lamb for very long that the calendar we follow isn't peripheral to our life as a church. It's not something that's just kind of on the side and in the background. The calendar we follow, the Christian calendar, is a tool for us being formed as God's people. Uh, people today, we find in the world, are making more and more of efficiency, of the issue of trying to use time wisely, of time Management, But I find that when we talk about this, the effort is to try to conquer time as if we can somehow bring time into our own control. But what we easily forget is that we don't get our way with time as much as time gets, has its way with us. Time ages us. It literally changes us and it changes everything around us. It does this in the long term, and it does it in the short term. The, the only say that we get to have, and even this say is pretty limited, is how does time change us? How does time change us? So, so God being wise, he knows all of this. He knows how time works on us, the effect it carries out on us. And this is why he gave the Israelites a calendar to live by. So one of the first thing God does with this nation of Israel is he gives them feasts throughout the year that would be devoted to him, to remembering his acts, acts of redemption. And then he would break time down even, uh, even more into weeks with a day each week that would be solely devoted to him, to remembering their own humanity and then to remembering God. And even within those days, God would expect them to pray and spend time thinking about his works, what he had done for them. So a calendar, as boring as it may seem to all of us, it marks people in these indelible ways. It's powerful. Whoever gets to determine a calendar gets to determine a people in some way. Now, over the years, the Spirit has guided the church into doing the same thing that God did with his people early on. So we break down the year into seasons to help us remember God's character and his acts of redemption through Jesus and through the Spirit. In Advent, we enter into Israel's longing for a Messiah to rescue them from sin. We lean into our own longing for Christ to return during this season. And then from Advent, we move into Christmas, and this is easy. We celebrate the coming of Christ in the Incarnation. Our culture likes this one because it's celebration. They don't like so much the penitential seasons, Advent, Lent. 
You know, in Epiphany, we celebrate God's salvation that is extended to the nations. Beyond just the Jewish people, it bursts onto the scene in all the world. Christ is a savior for all people. In Lent, we walk with Jesus on the way to his cross to self-sacrifice. And we learn to do this ourselves. Then in Easter, again, a season the world loves, we celebrate his resurrection. Victory over death and evil. And then finally, of course, Easter moves toward Pentecost. It concludes with Pentecost. So as we did last week, we give thanks for the Spirit who's come to fill us with Christ's presence until Christ returns in full. Now these seasons from Advent to Pentecost, they cover the most significant events in the life of Christ and in the work of the Spirit within the church. But today, we begin a season of the church calendar called Ordinary Time. That's exciting, isn't it? (laughs) Ordinary time kicks off with a focus on God as revealed as Trinity. So today is called Trinity Sunday. You see that at the bottom front of your worship guide. Now, and every Sunday for a while, you're going to notice on the front of your worship guide that the title for the Sunday is numbered based on today. So next Sunday, for instance, will be called the first Sunday after Trinity. And it's going to follow that way for a long time. Now, the numbering is actually where the name of the season comes from. Ordinary uh, comes from this Latin word for order, ordo, or numbering. And so it's a way of describing, describing the numbering. This is getting more exciting as we go, isn't it? Don't you love this? Here's the deal. We, we just celebrated Pentecost and the fire of the Spirit. And now we move into a time called Ordinary Time. And it's the lengthiest season of the church calendar. It reflects life in that way. Most of life, for most of people, just feels ordinary. Sometimes frustratingly ordinary, depressingly ordinary. Lots of day-to-day tasks, sometimes an overwhelming amount of work. Ordinary relationships, difficult relationships, ordinary jobs, ordinary family struggles, and ordinary financial stressors. Isn't this what we mean by ordinary? That life is hard? There's an irony in the notion of ordinary time in our church calendar. And in this description of ordinary life. The irony is that God has broken into the world through Jesus and the Spirit. The world has become charged with God's glory, infused with his presence. So even ordinary time is special in some way. It has to be. In fact, it's always in the midst of ordinary time that God does his work. Jesus comes as a baby in the midst of ordinary time. The Israelites are rescued out of Egypt, Egyptian slavery, in the midst of ordinary time. You and I are working out our own salvation in the midst of marriages, friendships, a church, where things can be frustrating and difficult. It's all ordinary. And that is where God's salvation comes to us. That is where it's to be worked out. This is the irony 
The time is always tipped one way or the other, toward God or away from him. And time is waiting to discover what we're going to do with it. Time is never merely ordinary. It's all significant. So this morning, I want to draw our attention uh, primarily to the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And if you have your Bible, I hope you'll open it there. I think a main thing that's happening in this vision is that Isaiah is being confronted with the extraordinary reality of life in the midst of the depressingly ordinary. So for Isaiah, a king is died. Did you hear it as Kara read? In the year that King Uzziah died, God, Isaiah saw God, saw the Lord seated on his throne. So in in Israel, the political sky is falling. The world is melting down around them. it's, It's impossible for us to grasp how unsettling this would have been for an Israelite. So, you know, you hear our world in America now because Trump is not an ordinary president. People are really struggling with this, all right? In Israel, when a king died... What we're experiencing is nothing compared to this. Your whole identity as an Israelite is wrapped up in this nation. Your sense of who God is. You're supposed to be God's people. Your sense of who you are. Your sense of who your family is. It's all wrapped up in this notion of being an Israelite. And the king has died. There's no greater time for outside nations to attack than in the midst of a political transition. There's no one ruling. Let's go get them. This type of situation that Isaiah is facing created, created doubt and fear on all sides. And then Isaiah is a prophet. He's going to be called to stand up and to speak to God's people about how God is acting in the midst of this. What is he going to say? I want to use this story to convince us, to convince you, that no aspect of your life is merely ordinary either. Now, there are three areas where we're confronted with the extraordinary reality of life. The first is this, God. Just that, God. He is the only irreducible factor in all of life. A king, a sovereign, a nation's protector has died. What are they going to do? Then comes the vision. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. There's a king in Israel whose throne is empty. The king has died. And what does Isaiah see in the vision? A throne, and there's someone seated on it. Not only is he seated on it, but he's high and lifted up on the throne. Everything looks like it's falling apart in Israel. But all the while, in God's heavenly courtroom, things are going along just fine. The seraphim are still singing God's praise, still declaring his holiness, that he is the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of armies. Which means God is still reigning, still in control. 
Now, Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, it doesn't use punctuation. So the way to create emphasis is through repetition. God says to Moses out of the burning bush in Exodus, Moses, Moses. That's the that's the emphatic. That's how you create an exclamation point in Hebrew. You say twice. But the use of a threefold repetition as here, it's reserved for God alone. This is never used for anyone else in the Bible. It's reserved for God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven and earth. Notice here, too, that the triune nature of God is layered throughout Scripture. Holy, holy, holy. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are thrice holy, and they together command the heavenly armies. What I think is going on here, and what I think we need to draw from at first, is that Christians have to find a kind of double vision in the world. We have to be able to see two different things at the same time. We have to be able to see what's going on on earth, where things can be sometimes depressingly ordinary, other times delightfully ordinary. We have to be able to acknowledge that life can be very difficult, that its challenges never stop coming, no matter how old we get. And yet, at the same time, we cannot resort to a stoic apathy or to despair. We cannot pretend that life's challenges don't affect us. Neither can we allow God's challenge, the, the challenges of life to become so oppressive in our lives that we see no hope at all. And the only way to have this kind of double vision, to be able to see reality in, in, on earth and also to see God, is to see that God reigns at all times. That he is king and he is ultimate reality over all of earth and heaven. I, I can't tell you how often I just fall back on this. It, it sounds so simple, but when it comes down to it at the end of the day, this is really what we have. This is what's comforting to me on many days to know that God is the most real thing of all that is. When it comes down to it, having a sense of God's reign at every stage of life, whether you're a child and life is difficult or you're a teenager and you're trying to move through school and you're trying to move through friendships and grades and all these sorts of things. Or you're trying to move through college and figure out what you're going to do with your life. Or then you get into in your adulthood and you find that life is nothing like you expected it would be. What do you have at the end of all this? You have God. He's unmoved. He's reigning. He's still high and lifted up on his throne. He is still holy and in command. This is what gives us an undergirding sense of peace within a life that doesn't make sense. Now, here's another part of this. How do you have visions like this? like Isaiah's, or even close to Isaiah's. How do you see God in this way? Well, I think this passage actually gives us a hint. So the vision Isaiah has here, it looks remarkably similar to the temple that God had instructed the Israelites to build. 
The earthly temple turns out to be a replica of the heavenly temple. It, it looks just like it in almost every way. The main difference is that, that in the heavenly temple that we're seeing in this vision, God sits on a throne. Whereas in the earthly temple, there was the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim and the seraphim were on top of it. So this is the main difference. In the heavenly temple, you can see God on his throne. So if you had to say, where do you think Isaiah was when he had this vision? Anybody want to? Take a guess. In the temple. He was probably in the temple praying when he has this vision. Now, why does that matter? I think in our world we have this romantic notion that the truest and the best things in life, love, beauty, spirituality, that these things just spring on us out of nowhere. Unbidden, they just arrive at our door. They're like wildflowers. They just pop up and they're gorgeous and they're there just for us. But this is not usually the way that the truest and most wonderful things usually come into our lives. It's just not. So Matthew and Leah Kirkpatrick hosted me and the boys one day this week. And um, we were walk- she was walking me around and showing me their flower gardens. And they're just exquisite. They're beautiful. She was telling me about all the flowers that she, she planted. Do you know how long it's taken for her yard to get to that place? Over 10 years. Many of you have nurtured your homes over even longer than that. And it's taken that amount of time for them to arrive at the beauty they're at. It's amazing when you're in Matthew's Le- in Leah's backyard because it is this place of remarkable peace. But it hasn't come without work. The beauty that's been created there has been worked for. Now, this doesn't mean that she made it completely. But Leah and Matthew, to some extent, I don't know who you want to give more credit to, Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) They've created a context where that beauty can grow up. They can't make the flowers grow, of course, but they've created an atmosphere that is uh, helpful to those flowers growing up. Love, beauty, and this kind of vision of God that Isaiah has. These are all nurtured over years of work. It does not mean that we make it happen, but we put ourselves in a place in which we can see and hear God. If you want to know God, you have to continually immerse yourself in in him, in the places and in the things in which God loves to reveal himself. So why does it just make sense that Isaiah has this vision in the temple? Because God loves to work in that place that he has set aside for worship, for revealing himself. Do you want to have a vision like this of God? Well, I know a few places. There just happen to be places that God loves to work. Worship is one. This is one. This is why we want to create spaces of worship that aren't just functional, but they're filled with symbols that draw us into God, that help us think about God when we leave here. This is why we use liturgy, prayers that we pray over and over again, not so they become dead to you, but so that when you leave here, you pray those same prayers and you find God in them. God loves to reveal himself in worship. 
He loves to reveal himself in scripture. And this is why we read so much scripture in service. And you know what? He also loves to reveal himself to to us through each other in spirit-filled friendships. Where we know how to love and forgive each other. Care for each other. This is the first extraordinary reality that Isaiah is confronted with. God. God is the most ultimate factor in all of reality. Everything in life boils down to God. Is he king? Then all will be well. Somehow all will be well. Life is extraordinary because God exists and he reigns. Now, the second extraordinary reality Isaiah is confronted with is this. The world. The world itself. Things look bleak for Israel in this historical moment that they're living in. But at the same time, the seraphim are still saying of God, the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right now, the seraphim are saying, in the midst of America the way it is, in the midst of Israel the way it was, the whole earth is still full of his glory. So glory in the Bible means weight, substance. Uh, There's this funny scene in the book of 1 Samuel where there's a priest named Eli who is fat. He's overweight, right? And when it describes him, it talks about his kavod, his glory. Now, glory is not always a good thing. That's his weightiness. He is overweight. So you can use this for fun with each other this week. What's your kavod up to today? (laughs) With God, his glory is always a good thing. The seraphim are saying that the earth is full of God's weightiness, his substance. So when you zoom out from any moment in life and look at the beauty of the world, the intricacies of creation, you cannot help but see that it is dripping with glory. Yes, the king is dead, but the earth is still full of his glory. Yes, my life, it doesn't make sense, but the earth is still filled with his glory. What we're supposed to see when we look out into the world is God. The ancient Christians had a way of speaking of this in which God, he had spoken through two books. One is scripture. The other is creation. Creation is a book in which we discover God over and over his limitless depths. This is why for so many of us, when we're stressed, When life has weighed us down, what we need most isn't to go binge Netflix for a while, but to go out into the world and take it in and let it take us in to play and delight in creation, to look and to expect God to reveal himself anew to us. I like to read poets and other writers who have a close, keen eye for natural beauty. It it helps me to slow down. It helps me see things I hadn't seen before to look closer. Gerard Manley Hopkins was a 19th century poet uh, from England. He was known for his keen observations of God in the natural world. And in one poem he wrote, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. Isn't that a beautiful image? Like the shining from a shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil. 
In another, he says, glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a branded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim. It's so simple, but so beautiful. He's seeing God in everything. Fresh fire, coal, chestnut falls, finches wings. God fathers forth, he whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Annie Dillard is a writer who spent uh, some years living on Tinker Creek near Roanoke, and, or in Roanoke, and she spent these years just observing the natural world around her. She would take these long walks and just observe, and then she would write, and she eventually compiled this into a book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, that's uh, been very popular. She said, the real question of all of nature is this, why is it beautiful? Why is it beautiful? Everywhere I look, she says, I see fire. That which isn't flint is tender, and the whole world sparks and flames. I hope you find as much joy in that as I do. Why is it beautiful? Because it's filled with glory, with the weight and wonder of God in all of his extravagance. Life can never be ordinary in this world. Because the world itself, no matter how ordinary it may feel, it may seem at times, it's anything but ordinary. Life is extraordinary because the world is charged with his grandeur. It cannot, it simply cannot be ordinary. And there's a third area we're confronted with, the extraordinariness of life. The first is God. The second is the world itself. And the third is you. You, me. It's us. Together, but also as individuals. Isaiah's vision reduces him to nothing. All he can do is confess. He, he, he is in all of God. He senses his unworthiness. This is what a real vision of God does. It reduces us to nothing except confession. Now, we have to be careful. This does not mean that we're absolutely worthless. That's not what I'm saying. But all of us have to get to a place before God where we recognize that of ourselves, we have nothing to give. It doesn't mean we're worthless. But of ourselves, we have nothing to give. The reason is that of ourselves, we give in all the wrong ways. When we try to do it ourselves, we give in all the wrong ways. And we, and we begin to think that it really is up to us in some way. That we have to make ourselves admirable before God and we have to earn his love. We have to be reduced first. We have to confess and relinquish all our attempts to do life in our own way, to do relationship to God in our own way. But that's not the end of the vision where Isaiah confesses. Isaiah is then forgiven. And then in a part we didn't hear, he's commissioned as a servant of God. So this is verse 8 of Isaiah 6. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And God said, go.
In the book of Romans, Paul tells the Christians, I love this phrase, you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He addresses them as people who are loved, forgiven by God, and then called to be saints. This is what he tells them. You are loved by God and called to be saints. Can you believe that this is who you are? You're called to belong to Jesus Christ. You are loved and forgiven by God, and you are called to be a saint. St. Ethan, St. Bernard, St. Amy, St. Glenn, St. Jan. Each one of you and me, we are loved, forgiven by God, and called to be a saint. Our sin has been atoned for by Jesus, forgiven. And life cannot be ordinary when you have this kind of identity that surrounds you. Called to belong to Jesus, loved by God, called to be a saint. This is who you are. And you have to continually let God reduce you so that you can remember that this is who, are you, who you are by birthright. This is who he's made you. You have not done it. And then, as you get to that place over and over again where you're reduced, then, like Isaiah, God gives each one of us a vocation in life. Possibly more than one. A road on which we are called to follow and serve Him. Whether it's in marriage or singleness, whether it's through work or through some other some service in the world or in our home, whether it's through church, through friendship, and each of these areas. Say when we discipline and teach children in a classroom or in a home, when we serve a client in our work, when we clean our home to invite friends over for dinner, we are living before God and we are living for God. Eugene Peterson was a pastor, writer, he died recently, and he described life as a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. This is what God has called us to, all of us, in various ways, to root ourselves in God, and out of that rooting, to serve Him in the place that He's called us. Mother Teresa, you know, we think of her as this grand person, um, but she was a, a meek and lowly nun. And once in riding on a train, when she was very young, God told her, you need to go serve the poor in this place. And she did that. A long obedience in the same direction for many years. And that's what made her who she was. And Mother Teresa said this, Do not think that love in order to be genuine has to be extraordinary. We must love those who are nearest to us. In our own family, friendships, above all, your, fa your love has to start there. 
I want you to be the good news to those around you, she says. I want you to be concerned about your next door neighbor. Do not pursue spectacular deeds. In the work we have to do, it does not matter how small and humble it may be. Make it Christ's love in action. What matters is the gift of yourself. The degree of love that you put into each one of your actions. This is what makes life extraordinary. That God exists above all and reigns above all. That the world that he's made is charged with his glory. And that he has made you and me to be saints. And to serve him as his saints. Our lives are far from ordinary. At any point, they are far from ordinary. Every moment, whether of sleeping or eating or talking with a friend or parenting children, it's all a significant gift that's given to us to be offered back up in love, in service, and in praise to Christ. Life is far from ordinary. We have this special gift that we live our lives before God and for Him. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.